I want to start with a question, uh, maybe a little bit of a sobering question is, is, have you ever been through something that has shaken your life or shaken your faith to the core? Something that just rocked you, something that made you question everything you thought to be true. Well, this past Wednesday for me marked the 20-year anniversary of my best friend, Jonathan Huggins, uh, taking his own life. I was in high school, and uh, it, was, it was one of those events that just causes your world to come collapsing in. And, and this event for me really shook up everything I believed about God in a way that nothing else had. And uh, as I spent time reflecting this past week, I wrote a poem just as a way of, of me expressing the personal journey that I have gone through in the midst of sorrow and pain and loss. And it's titled, 20 Years Ago Today. And I'm going to read it to you. This is full of life, adventure, and oh, those smiles, the gift of friendship we enjoyed a few miles Pushing the limits and breaking the rules, we sure had fun living like fools. A compassionate soul trying to make sense of the world, deep feelings and questions that made him feel cold. The darkness came in like a flood that day, like a sucker punch, a pain that doesn't go away. A whirlwind of thoughts, life would never be the same. I had to escape, find a way to numb the pain. Intense tears filled my eyes in an anger so deep Alcohol didn't help. It only made this kid weep. How? Why? What the hell? Questions that can plague my mind still. The devil was surely laughing that day because for me it was impossible to pray. A weeping mother over the casket of her son. How in that moment death felt like it had won. Being at church just filled me with rage. I couldn't escape or make sense of this sorrowful cage. I may not have all the answers, nor have processed all the pain, but I've come to find hope in Christ, his death, my gain. For God sent his son to die for our sin, and he rose to life, giving hope deep within We will all die soon, saying goodbye to those we love, but eternity awaits with Christ who is seated above. Twenty years ago today, it felt like the end. Twenty years ago today, I lost my best friend. On Wednesday, I had the privilege of being in Jonathan's home with his family. uh, To be with his parents, to be and get to see his, his sister and his brother, uh, on that day was incredibly special for me, um, and uh, his brother Chad and I had a chance to drive up to Evergreen, up to the cemetery where Jonathan was buried, and uh, we had no luck finding his headstone because <laughs> there was a bunch of snow, and uh, it's one of those flat ones, and so we just kind of walked around like kicking ice off of headstones, kind of interesting. Uh, but we just spent time reminiscing, spent time thinking of the good times that we had with Jonathan, and we talked about how one dark day can change your entire world. And this was a day that impacted hundreds and hundreds of people. And this is the last week of our four-week series on worship, and this is something that we typically don't think to talk about in the realm of worship, is <laughs> how do we go through the deepest, darkest days of our lives in a way that is an act of worship unto God. 
And we'll see that there is a way to worship through the minor key songs of life. Worship isn't always happy. It's not always upbeat. It's not always clap your hands. It's not always shouts of praise. Sometimes worship is heavy. Sometimes worship looks more like weeping than it does rejoicing. And as we've seen through the scriptures the last three weeks, worship is multifaceted. It's something that, that can consume all of life from the way we think to the way we feel to our actions and behavior. Worship should permeate everything we do and should be a part of who we are. And the statement that I set forth in the beginning of this four weeks in your notes there is this, is that true worship is glorifying God through trusting and treasuring Him above all else. So how are we to worship? How are we to trust and to treasure Him in the midst of those dark days that leave us feeling hopeless? Scripture has a word for this process of grieving, and it's called lamenting. Lamenting. And in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies, Mark Vrogup defines lament as follows. We'll put it up on the screen. It's that lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Has anyone ever been in that place? I think we all know it to some level. Some more than others. But this is uh, uniquely Christian. Because lamenting involves wrestling with the promise of God's goodness. It has to do with God and our wrestlings with Him. And to do one week on this topic, we won't be able to do this justice. And so in a few months, or once fall gets here again, we are going to teach through the book of Lamentations. We're going to learn what does it look like to lament as a community? What does it look like to lament as an individual? And we're going to, we're going to uh, peel the layers of this onion deeper. But today, I just want you to know on the, on the front end that lamenting is not a nice, neat process that follows any kind of rules. That is not what lament is. And the bullet points in your notes are not like the, here's the four steps to walk through lament in a good way. They're significant, and they need to be time thinking through these things, but again, it's not a nice, neat process. And today, we're going to survey the entire book of Job, all 42 chapters of it, and we're going to learn something about how we can worship through the days of greatest loss. Job is considered to be a wisdom literature. That's the category of literature it is. It is also poetry. There are three books that fit this category of wisdom literature, the other two being Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And they deal with the realities of life and the things that we think and the questions that we ask and the trials that we go through. And in the book of Job, we're going to explore the difficult question of human suffering. And how does God allow apparently an innocent man to suffer such tragedy? And how can we know that, that what happens in this life doesn't change the wisdom, character, and nature of God? These are big questions. They take time to process, to think through. And this is what the book of Job poses to us. Again, I think the two primary questions are, how can God be good if innocent people suffer? And is God really all-wise and just and in control of what's going on? 
So with that, let's read Job 1 to set up the context for the rest of our time together. Job 1, starting in verse 1. There was a man of the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. Okay, this is the, the wealthiest guy in the eastern part of the world. And it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in their house, each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So here we see Job. He's looking out for the spiritual welfare of his family. He's offering sacrifice on behalf of his children just in case they may have happened to sin. And then we go here. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It seems to me that the tragedies that come upon us unexpectedly are the ones that rock our worlds the most. The ones where that's not supposed to be a part of my story. That's not how the way, this isn't how it's supposed to go down. And I don't think I need to tell you this, but I think I need to remind you of this, is that we are going to lose everything we cherish in this life. It's just a matter of when and how. When and how. At some level, we need to be reminded and be ready for this reality. And the scriptures, as best as they can, 
prepare us. Now, you're never emotionally prepared or mentally prepared for tragedy, but you can have your thinking and your perspective on life anchored in the truth of God's Word that will help you navigate the hardness of life. For Job, his great possessions and his children were blown away with the wind in one dreadful day. And the way we see Job respond to this uh, crazy day is absolutely incredible. Verse 20. Then Job arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head, both signs of deep grief and pain. It says, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. <laughs> How many of you think that's what your response would be? To fall on your face before God and worship. And then he continues, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The origin of the song we just sang came on the darkest day of Job's life. And then check this out. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job starts his lamenting journey in a positive direction. Now, he doesn't stay there. We'll see that. But he starts by doing a very wise move, and that is he turns to the Lord. And that's the first point in your notes there, is in the midst of our darkest day, we would be wise to turn to the Lord. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's just the right move to bring our brokenness and our prayerful, grieving cries of worship before God. I believe this is one of the greatest expressions of trust in our sovereign God that we can do, is simply to turn to Him. And Job does this. For me, 20 years ago, instead of running to God with my brokenness, I ran to a bottle to numb the pain. And many of you have perhaps tried to do that yourself, and you've come to find out that it, it really is uh, a pit. It's a trap. It only makes things worse. It only makes you cry harder and rage longer, which is what happened to me. You see, my view of God at that time as, as a, a young man still in my teens was if I'm a good kid, life's going to go pretty well for me. I'm going to enjoy a blessed life relatively free from major pain and suffering. And I had a rude awakening that day that that is simply not true, nor is it biblical. Job, however, sets us an example by the way he turns to God, presents his brokenness to God in humble worship. And I think that's another aspect of what we learn from Job here is that part of his worship is humbly clinging to what he knew to be true about God. We don't know if he actually felt it in that moment, but he was clinging to what he knew to be true. And he professed, verse 21 at the end, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job remembers it. I came from the dust. I came into this world naked. I'm leaving this world with nothing. And everything I have, everything I've ever enjoyed is a gift from the good hand of God who is to be blessed, the giver and author of life. So Job is starting well. 
And thus far, he hasn't sinned against the Lord through the pain of his circumstances. But we learn in chapter 2 that Satan isn't done yet. Okay, he can't get Job to curse God by stripping him of all his possessions. How about his health? And Job, or Satan comes before God again. Verse 7 says, so Satan, or he comes before God and Satan basically says, hey, take away his health and he'll curse you. God allows this for reasons we don't know. But verse 7 says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Just when Job thought his day couldn't get any worse, this happens. Not only is he experiencing deep, gut-wrenching, emotional pain, he is now experiencing excruciating physical pain. What would bring you to the point of scraping yourself with broken pieces of anything? Job is in pain. Enter Job's wife, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wives, don't ever say that to your husbands. On the day that Job loses all of his wealth, all of his children, and his own health, The one by his side should be the one to provide some sort of empathy, some sort of uh, consolation, some sort of comfort. And she does the exact opposite. And there's a reality here that I've seen and I've heard from others also. That people can say really dumb things in the midst of loss. Some of you know what I'm saying because people have said really dumb things to you after a loss. Oh, it'll be fine. Oh, you'll get over it. It's ridiculous. We would be wise, especially as the church, to think twice before opening our mouths when our friends, our brothers and sisters are grieving. Because most of what we say, while it might be good intentioned, is not helpful. Job's wife, her words contained within them the intentions of Satan. I don't think she knew that. I don't think she's like, oh, I know this is what Satan's trying to get my husband to do, so I just want him to tap out and give up. I think she's being honest. Like, well, God's inflicted with this. Just curse him and die. Get over it. Just, Just do that. But look at what Job responds to her with verse 10 but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women who speak shall we receive good from the lord and shall we not receive evil and then again it's emphasized that in all of this job did not sin with his lips in this moment in this scenario in this conversation job stays humble while clinging to what he knows to be true about god And I love how chapter 2 closes because it's a, a beautiful picture of genuine friendship. Job 2, verse 11. 
Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Elizpha the Temanite, Bildad the Shuamite, and Zorpha the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. What an awesome display of friendship. Friends not only coming when they hear of their friend being in trouble, but entering into a friend's pain, ripping their clothes just like Job had done, sprinkling themselves with the dust of the earth. Again, a sign of of deep grief. And again, to reinforce what I said earlier, sometimes there is nothing that needs to be said. They were silent for seven days, weeping together, crying together. I'm sure Job was still scratching his wounds the whole time. But Job knew in that moment he had friends by his side. He knew he wasn't alone. And I believe that can be extremely helpful in times of tragedy. But after seven days of this silence and experience a deep emotional and physical pain, we see a change in chapter 3. Now a new reality sets in for Job as he begins to think and process after uh, maybe the the fog or or the shock has now worn off, if you will. He he starts to speak and all of chapter 3 is Job cursing the day that he was born. Here's a few things that he said. He said, let the day perish on which I was born. Let that day be darkness. Let that night be barren. I wish I was a stillborn. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job's emotions are now flowing out of his mouth honestly, and they aren't pretty, which is the third point in your notes as we go through a lamenting process, uh, even part of our worship is to be honest with our feelings and with our questions. Job is so miserable. The pain is so deep that he is experiencing, that he is verbalizing in front of his friends, I wish I was never born. It would have been so much better to have never lived than to be in the midst of this current misery that is my reality. I don't know about for you, but for me, sometimes I'm like afraid to communicate my raw emotions. Sometimes I'm hesitant, like I can't say that or, oh, that was a a dark thought. I'm not going to say that out loud. And so we stuff, we suppress, or we just think it's not okay to deal with the real things we think and feel. And while I'm not advocating that we go around every day, all day, just sharing whatever things we think and whatever feelings that come upon us, that would be foolishness. But when it comes to the lamenting process, if you don't get real, if you don't get honest, if you don't have a safe place to pour out your guts, no matter what comes out, it's going to short circuit your ability to navigate pain in a healthy way. 
For Job, his safe place was with these three friends who listened for a while. And I would just advocate for us as a church that the church should be the safest place in the world to be honest with what we go through. Should be a place that, hey, you're going to love me even if I say some really foolish and ungodly things. Some things that aren't true. I'm still going to listen and love you through the process. And the next 34 chapters of Job are filled with this rich Hebrew poetic dialogue between Job and his friends as they go on this journey together, a quest to figure out the why behind all the suffering that has come upon Job. And these men are, they're doing their best to honestly process with him. And they're assuming some things about God which are true, but they're, they're not able to connect the dots in their minds. So they're saying, hey, God is just. God rules the world with justice. In other words, they believe you reap what you sow. And the conclusion then is that God must have, or Job must have sinned in some way for this have, to have happened to him. Like Job, you had to have sinned. There's no other answer. There's no other reason why. It had to be something you did. And so they go on to, to just share a, a myriad of ways in which Job could have possibly sinned, all to which Job says, no, I'm innocent. And as we read in Job 1, God said Job was innocent. He said he was blameless. So he is suffering as an innocent man. And throughout the bulk of these conversations, we see Job continue his emotional journey. One moment trusting God, the next minute questioning him. And at one point in the process, Job accuses God of being careless, unjust, and corrupt. It's a pretty big accusation to make against God. But Job does it. He does it. Again, I think this is all part of Job trying to honestly wrestle with understanding God and the things that happen in life, which brings us to the last point, is that we need to give one another freedom to be human. God made you to think. He made you to feel. He gave you a capacity to question and to inquire. We are not robots And we all wrestle with the hard reality of this life. This last week, as I was reflecting on the life of my friend, I I called uh, our former youth pastor who led a a Bible study with me and and a, a few of my friends. And it really helped fill in some of the holes and some of the things that I'm just like, how, like, what brought him to that place where he was so hopeless that he just wanted to end it all? Like, what led to that place? And Russ, the the youth leader, he mentioned to me how about nine months previous to that event, he had taken Jonathan out to lunch. And they had sat and talked, and he had just heard some of the questions and some of the, the things that he didn't understand. Some of the stuff that he was wrestling with, and he wasn't able to reconcile in his own mind and heart. And I asked Russ, I said, what, like, what were those questions? What, what was going on? And he said, well, it's kind of the classic, like, why do bad things happen to good people kind of questions. The how can God allow all the evil and suffering in this world and still be good? Those kind of questions. Wow. Those sound awfully familiar to the book of Job, do they not? 
to wrestle with God and to ask questions is part of what it means to be human and part of the authentic journey of a relationship that God wants us to go on with Him. You are not going to go through the process of lamenting and loss perfectly, and you surely will not go through it sinlessly. Job started that way, but he didn't stay that way. He veered. He accused God of some serious things. But we need to know that God's big enough for that. God knows you're a, you're a finite human being who's going to wrestle and process and that that isn't always going to look pretty. But he's big enough to handle it. What I find so fascinating about the book of Job is, is that as it nears the end, Job never gets answers to his questions. God doesn't answer his question. He never has resolution to the, the question of why he suffered. But God does do something. God personally shows up to Job. God enters in a dialogue with Job, conversing with him and revealing to him the vastness of the universe and showing him that, that maybe just by chance that this whole thing of life is a little bit more complex than Job initially realized. See, God took Job on a tour of the galaxies to show him how small he was and what a limited perspective he had. And then Job gets hit with a barrage of questions from God. Okay, okay, Job, you have questions of me? Here's my questions for you. <laughs> and God just lays them all out. So where were you when the foundations of the world were laid, Job? Like, how is it that you can even think and feel, and how is it that you exist? Like, he just goes through. Job, do you know who you're talking to? Job, do you want to try to run the world? I'll give you a chance. Let's see how well you do. And Job ends up getting a glimpse of God's greatness and glory that brings him back to the place he started. Job 42, 2 through 6. Job speaking, I know that you, God, can do anything and that no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Job confesses, it is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes and I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job's finally at a place of, okay, you're God and I'm not. How foolish of me. And yes, our questioning God's character is foolishness because he who is who he is no matter what we think about him. But it's still part of our journey. It's still part of our processing. It's still part of our wrestling with God. And it will end back into a place of humility. If you see God for who he is and who his word reveals him to be. And when we get to that place, just like Job, we repent of our foolish accusations against God. And we trust 
from his divine perspective that he knows what he's doing even if we don't have answers to our questions. But you know what got Job there? It was a personal encounter with God. That is the only thing I believe will bring you to this place is to personally encounter God. And that's a journey. It's a path that's not always easy. You don't know when or how God might show up or what he might do or who he might use to enter in that process with you. But we need to have the freedom and we need to know that God is big enough to handle all of our questions, all of our lack of understanding. But in the end, he wants us to arrive at a place as true worshipers that acknowledge he's God. He has eternal perspective and we do not. Here's something I was thinking about today is Job is in the Old Testament. You might say, okay, great. The reason I bring that up is because we have a vantage point and an advantage today that Job didn't have. We have the gospel. We have hope. We have a perspective to process our suffering that Job did not have. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who is the personal presence of the living God inside all who have trusted in him. And the gospel message declares that God willfully, intentionally, and personally entered into human suffering by sending his son. This is what we learn in Isaiah 53 in reference to Jesus. It says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But check this out. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. God doesn't just understand your pain. He has gone through it himself. And he came and willfully subjected himself to it out of love for us. So that we might be healed and find redemption through him. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see that not only did it end in a cross, but Jesus knows what it is to lose an earthly father. His father passed away. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. A friend turned him in. Jesus knows what it's like to have your family think you're crazy and off your rocker because that's what his family said about him. And Jesus knows what it's like to be Guilty of a crime you didn't commit, for he was sentenced to death on a cross as an innocent man. Reality check is not one person in this room is innocent before God. The scriptures declare all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can come to God with accusations and say, This isn't fair, God. I've never done anything wrong. What's up? We can't say that. We are blameless, but that's why God came. 
That's why God sent his son to bear the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven through faith in what Christ has done. And so that through the resurrection of Christ, we know that one day we will rise again and that one day there will be no more tears, temptations, or tragedy. But until then, church, we lament the losses in this life. But we do not lament without hope because the gospel is the greatest evidence of a loving God who has promised us a bright future. You may not and probably will not get answers to some of your questions. But you can trust God's sovereign control and more importantly, his unfailing love. I believe that this is the only way that you and I will be able to worship God through our darkest days. It's if we truly believe that. The book of Job concludes with God blessing him with a double portion. It doesn't explain why. It just says that it happens. That Job in this life got back everything that he had lost times two. And as I stopped to think about I was thinking about that, and and that's not going to be true of everyone who goes through loss, that God replaces it with double. That's not what that's about. I think it's a window into the eternal reality for those who are in Christ. To say that in comparison to the losses of this life, eternity is going to be so much better. Any blessings you've experienced in this life, eternity is going to be so much better. Any good we have here is going to be great there. And we would be wise and do well to cling to that in the midst of our dark days. So I tried to convince you of that statement that true worship is glorifying God through trusting and treasuring Him above all else. I hope I did that justice. If you have any questions, I'd love to process that with you still. But let's pray as an act of worship to our God.